This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Yvain by Chrétien de Troyes, translated by W. W. Comfort, Section 2. My lord Yvain mounts at once, intending to avenge, if possible, his cousin's disgrace before he returns. The squire ran for the arms and steed. He mounted at once without delay, since he was already equipped with shoes and nails. Then he followed his master's track until he saw him standing mounted, waiting to one side of the road in a place apart. He brought him his harness and equipment, and then accoutred him. My lord Yvain made no delay after putting on his arms, but hastily made his way each day over the mountains and through the valleys, through the forests long and wide, through strange and wild country, passing through many gruesome spots, many a danger and many a strait, until he came directly to the path, which was full of brambles and dark enough. Then he felt he was safe at last, and could not now lose his way. Whoever may have to pay the cost, he will not stop until he sees the pine, which shades the spring and stone, and the tempest of hail and rain and thunder and wind. That night, you may be sure, he had such lodging as he desired, for he found the vavasor to be even more polite and courteous than he had been told, and in the damsel he perceived a hundred times more sense and beauty than Calogrenant had spoken of, for one cannot rehearse the sum of a lady's or a good man's qualities. The moment such a man devotes himself to virtue, his story cannot be summed up or told, for no tongue could estimate the honourable deeds of such a gentleman. My lord Yvain was well content with the excellent lodging he had that night, and when he entered the clearing the next day, he met the bulls and the rustic boar who showed him the way to take. But more than a hundred times he crossed himself at the sight of the monster before him, how nature had ever been able to form such a hideous, ugly creature. Then to the spring he made his way, and found there all that he wished to see. Without hesitation, and without sitting down, he poured the basin full of water upon the stone, when straight away it began to blow and rain, and such a storm was caused as had been foretold. And when God had appeased the storm, the birds came to perch upon the pine and sang their joyous songs up above the perilous spring. But before their jubilee had ceased, there came the night, more blazing with wrath than a burning log, and making as much noise as if he were chasing a lusty stag. As soon as they espied each other, they rushed together, and displayed the mortal hate they bore. Each one carried a stiff, stout lance, with which they dealt such mighty blows, that they pierced the shields about their necks, and cut the meshes of their halberks. Their lances are splintered and sprung, while the fragments are cast high in air. Then each attacks the other with his sword, and in the strife they cut the straps of the shields away, and cut the shields all to bits from end to end, so that the shreds hang down, no longer serving as covering or defense, for they have so split them up that they bring down the gleaming blades upon their sides, their arms and hips. Fierce indeed is their assault, yet they do not budge from their standing place any more than would two blocks of stone. Never were their two knights so intent upon each other's death. 
They are careful not to waste their blows, but lay them on as best they may. They strike and bend their helmets, and they send the meshes of their halberts flying so that they draw not a little blood, for the halberts are so hot with their body's heat that they hardly serve as more protection than a coat. As they drive the sword-point at the face, it is marvellous that so fierce and bitter a strife should last so long. But both are possessed of such a courage that one would not for aught retreat a foot before his adversary until he had wounded him to death. Yet, in this respect, they were very honourable in not trying or dating to strike or harm their steeds in any way. But they sat astride their steeds without putting foot to earth which made the fight more elegant. At last my lord Yvain crushed the helmet of the knight, whom the blow stunned and made so faint that he swooned away, never having received such a cruel blow before. Beneath his kerchief, his head was split to the very brains, so that the meshes of his bright hauberk were stained with the brains and blood, all of which caused him such intense pain that his heart almost ceased to beat. He had good reason then to flee, for he felt that he had a mortal wound, and that further resistance would not avail. With this thought in mind, he quickly made his escape towards his town, where the bridge was lowered and the gate quickly opened for him. Meanwhile, my lord Yvain at once spurs after him at topmost speed. As a gerfalcon swoops upon a crane when he sees him rising from afar, and then draws so near to him that he is about to seize him, yet misses him, so flees the knight, with a vein pressing him so close that he can almost throw his arms about him, and yet cannot quite come up with him, though he is so close that he can hear him groan for the pain he feels. While the one exerts himself in flight, the other strives in pursuit of him, fearing to have wasted his effort unless he takes him alive or dead for he still recalls the mocking words which my lord Kay had addressed to him. He had not yet carried out the pledge which he had given to his cousin. Nor will they believe his word unless he returns with the evidence. The knight led him a rapid chase to the gate of his town, where they entered in, but finding no man or woman in the streets through which they passed, they both rode swiftly on till they came to the palace gate. The gate was very high and very wide, yet it had such a narrow entrance-way that two men, or two horses, could scarcely enter abreast or pass without interference or great difficulty, for it was constructed just like a trap which is set for the rat on mischief bent, and which has a blade above, ready to fall and strike and catch, and which is suddenly released whenever anything, however gently, comes in contact with the spring. In like fashion, Beneath the gate there were two springs, connected with a portcullis up above, edged with iron and very sharp. If anything stepped upon this contrivance, the gate descended from above, and whoever below was struck by the gate was caught and mangled. Precisely in the middle the passage lay as narrow as if it were a beaten track. Straight through it exactly the knight rushed on, with my lord Yvain madly following him apace and so close to him that he held him by the saddle-bow behind. It was well for him that he was stretched forward, for had it not been for this piece of luck, he would have been cut quite through, for his horse stepped upon the wooden spring which kept the portcullis in place. Like a hellish devil the gate dropped down, 
catching the saddle and the horse's haunches, which it cut off clean. But, thank God, my lord Yvain was only slightly touched when it grazed his back so closely that it cut both his spurs off, even with his heels. And while he thus fell in dismay, the other with his mortal wound escaped him, as you now shall see. Farther on there was another gate, just like the one they had just passed. Through this the knight made his escape, and the gate descended behind him. Thus my lord Yvain was caught, very much concerned and discomfited as he finds himself shut in this hallway, which was all studded with gilded nails, and whose walls were cunningly decorated with precious paints. But about nothing was he so worried as not to know what had become of the knight. While he was in this narrow place, he heard open the door of a little adjoining room, and there came forth alone a fair and charming maiden, who closed the door again after her. When she found my lord Yvain, at first she was sore dismayed. Surely, sir knight, she says, I fear you have come in an evil hour. If you are seen here, you will be all cut to pieces, for my lord is mortally wounded, and I know it is you who have been the death of him. My lady is in such a state of grief, and her people about her are crying so, that they are ready to die with rage, and moreover, they know you to be inside. But as yet their grief is such that they are unable to attend to you. The moment they come to attack you, they cannot fail to kill or capture you, as they may choose. And my lord Yvain replies to her, If God will, they shall never kill me, nor shall I fall into their hands. No, she says, for I shall do my utmost to assist you. It is not manly to cherish fear, so I hold you to be a man of courage, when you are not dismayed, and rest assured that if I could, I would help you and treat you honorably, as you in turn would do for me. Once my lady sent me on an errand to the king's court, and I suppose I was not so experienced or courteous, or so well behaved as a maiden ought to be. At any rate, there was not a knight there who deigned to say a word to me, except you alone, who stand here now. But you, in your kindness, honored and aided me. For the honor you did me then, I shall now reward you. I know full well what your name is. I recognize you at once. Your name is my lord Yvain. You may be sure and certain that if you take my advice, you will never be caught or treated ill. Please take this little ring of mine, which you will return when I shall have delivered you. Then she handed him the little ring, and told him that its effect was like that of the bark which covers the wood, so that it cannot be seen, but it must be worn so that the stone is within the palm. Then he who wears the ring upon his finger need have no concern for anything, for no one, however sharp his eyes may be, will be able to see him any more than the wood which is covered by the outside bark. All this is pleasing to my lord Yvain. And when she had told him this, she led him to a seat upon a couch, covered with a quilt so rich that the Duke of Austria had none such, and she told him that if he cared for something to eat, she would fetch it for him. And he replied that he would gladly do so. Running quickly into the chamber, she presently returned, bringing a roasted fowl and a cake, a cloth, a full pot of good grape wine covered with a white drinking cup. All this she offered to him to eat. And he, 
who stood in need of food, very gladly ate and drank. By the time he had finished his meal, the knights were astir inside looking for him, and eager to avenge their lord, who was already stretched upon his bier. Then the damsel said to Yvain, Friend, do you hear them all seeking you? There is a great noise and uproar brewing. But whoever may come or go, do not stir for any noise of theirs, for they can never discover you if you do not move from this couch. Presently you will see this room all full of ill-disposed and hostile people, who will think to find you here, and I make no doubt that they will bring the body here before interment, and they will begin to search for you under the seats and the beds. It will be amusing for a man who is not afraid, when he sees people searching so fruitlessly, for they will all be so blind, so undone, and so misguided, that they will be beside themselves with rage. I cannot tell you more just now, for I dare no longer tarry here. But I may thank God for giving me the chance and the opportunity to do some service to please you, as I yearn to do. Then she turned away, and when she was gone, all the crowd with one accord had come from both sides of the gates, armed with clubs and swords. There was a mighty crowd and press of hostile people surging about. When they espied in front of the gate the half of the horse which had been cut down, then they felt very sure that when the gates were opened they would find inside him whose life they wished to take. Then they caused to be drawn up those gates which had been the death of many men. But since no spring or trap was laid for their passage, they all came through abreast. Then they found at the threshold the other half of the horse that had been killed, but none of them had sharp enough eyes to see my lord of Ain, whom they would gladly have killed, and he saw them beside themselves with rage and fury, as they said, How can this be? For there is no door or window here through which anything could escape, unless it be a bird, a squirrel, or marmot, or some other even smaller animal. For the windows are barred, and the gates were closed as soon as my lord passed through. The body is in here, dead or alive, since there is no sign of it outside there. We can see no more than half of the saddle in here, but of him we see nothing, except the spurs which fell down severed from his feet. Now let us cease this idle talk, and search in all these corners, for he is surely in here still, or else we are all enchanted, or the evil spirits have filched him away from us. Thus they all, aflame with rage, sought him about the room, beating upon the walls and beds and seats, but the couch upon which he lay was spared and missed the blows, so that he was not struck or touched. But all about they thrashed enough, and raise an uproar in the room with their clubs, like a blind man who pounds as he goes about his search. While they were poking about under the beds and the stools, there entered one of the most beautiful ladies that any earthly creature ever saw. Word or mention was never made of such a fair Christian dame, and yet she was so crazed with grief that she was on the point of taking her life. All at once she cried out at the top of her voice, and then fell prostrate in a swoon. And when she had been picked up, she began to claw herself and tear her hair, like a woman who has lost her mind. She tears her hair and rips her dress, 
and faints at every step she takes. Nor can anything comfort her when she sees her husband borne along lifeless in the fire. For her happiness is at an end, and so she made her loud lament. The holy water and the crosses and the tapers were borne in advance by the nuns from a convent. Then came missals and censers and the priests, who pronounced the final absolution required for the wretched soul. My lord Yvain heard the cries and the grief that can never be described, for no one could describe it, nor was such ever set down in a book. The procession passed, but in the middle of the room a great crowd gathered around the bier, for the fresh, warm blood trickled out again from the dead man's wound, and this betokened certainly that the man was still surely present who had fought the battle and had killed and defeated him. Then they sought and searched everywhere, and turned and stirred up everything, until they were all in a sweat with the trouble and the press which had been caused by the sight of the trickling crimson blood. Then my lord Yvain was well struck and beaten where he lay, but not for that did he stir at all. And the people became more and more distraught because of the wounds which burst open, and they marvelled why they bled, without knowing whose fault it was. And each one to his neighbor said, The murderer is among us here, and yet we do not see him, which is passing strange and mysterious. At this the lady showed such grief that she made an attempt upon her life, and cried as if beside herself, Ah, God, then will the murderer not be found, the traitor who took my good lord's life, good, I, the best of the good indeed, true God, thine will be the fault if thou dost let him thus escape. No other man than thou should I blame for it, who dost hide him from my sight. Such a wonder was never seen, nor such injustice, as thou dost to me, in not allowing me even to see the man who must be so close to me. When I cannot see him, I may well say that some demon or spirit has interposed himself between us, so that I am under a spell. Or else he is a coward and is afraid of me. He must be a craven to stand in awe of me, and it is an act of cowardice not to show himself before me. Ah, thou spirit, craven thing, why art thou so in fear of me, when before my lord thou wert so brave? O oh, empty and elusive thing, why cannot I have thee in my power? Why cannot I lay hands upon thee now? But how could it ever come about that thou didst kill my lord, unless it was done by treachery? Surely my lord would never have met defeat at thy hands, had he seen thee face to face, for neither God nor man ever knew of his life, nor is there any like him now. Surely, hast thou been a mortal man, thou wouldst never have dared to withstand my lord, for no one could compare with him. Thus the lady struggles with herself, and and thus she contends and exhausts herself, and her people with her, for their part, show the greatest possible grief as they carry off the body to burial. After their long efforts and search, they are completely exhausted by the quest, and give it up from weariness, inasmuch as they can find no one who is in any way guilty. The nuns and priests, having already finished the service, had returned from the church and were gone to the burial. But to all this the damsel in her chamber paid no heed. Her thoughts are with my lord Yvain, and, 
coming quickly, she said to him, Fair sir, these people have been seeking you in force. They have raised a great tumult here, and have poked about in all the corners more diligently than a hunting dog goes ferreting a partridge or a quail. Doubtless you have been afraid. Upon my word, you are right, says he. I never thought to be so afraid. And yet, if it were possible, I should gladly look out through some window or aperture at the procession and the corpse. Yet he had no interest in either the corpse or the procession, for he would gladly have seen them all burned, even had it cost him a thousand marks. A thousand marks? Three thousand, verily, upon my word. But he said it because of the lady of the town, of whom he wished to catch a glimpse. So the damsel placed him at a little window, and repaid him as well as she could for the honour which he had done her. From this window my lord Yvain espies the fair lady, as she says, Sire, may God have mercy upon your soul, for never, I verily believe, did any knight ever sit in saddle who was your equal in any respect. No other knight, my fair sweet lord, ever possessed your honour or courtesy. Generosity was your friend, and boldness your companion. May your soul rest among the saints, my fair dear lord. Then she strikes and tears whatever she can lay her hands upon. Whatever the outcome may be, it is hard for my lord Yvain to restrain himself from running forward to seize her hands. But the damsel begs and advises him, and even urgently commands him, though with courtesy and graciousness, not to commit any rash deed, saying, You are well off here. Do not stir for any cause until this grief shall be assuaged. Let these people all depart, as they will do presently. If you act as I advise, in accordance with my views, great advantage may come to you. It will be best for you to remain seated here, and watch the people inside and out as they pass along the way, without their seeing you. But take care not to speak violently, for I hold that man to be rather imprudent than brave, who goes too far and loses his self-restraint, and commits some deed of violence the moment he has the time and chance. So if you cherish some rash thought, be careful not to utter it. The wise may conceal his imprudent thought, and works out righteousness if he can. So wisely take good care not to risk your head, for which they would accept no ransom. Be considerate of yourself, and remember my advice. Rest assured until I return, for I dare not stay longer now. I might stay so long, I fear, that they would suspect me when they did not see me in the crowd, and then I should suffer for it. Then she goes off, and he remains, not knowing how to comport himself. He is loath to see them bury the corpse without his securing anything to take back his evidence that he has defeated and killed him. If he has no proof or evidence, he will be held in contempt, for Kay is so mean, and obstinate, so given to mockery, and so annoying, that he could never succeed in convincing him. He would go about forever insulting him, flinging his mockery and taunts as he did the other day. These taunts are still fresh and rankling in his heart. But with her sugar and honey a new love now softened him. He had been to hunt upon his lands, and had gathered in his prey. His enemy carries off his heart, and he loves the creature, who hates him most. The lady, all unaware, has well avenged her lord's death. 
she has secured greater revenge than she could ever have done unless she had been aided by love who attacks him so gently that he wounds his heart through his eyes and this wound is more enduring than any inflicted by lance or sword a sword blow is cured and healed at once as soon as a doctor attends to it but the wound of love is worst when it is nearest to its physician this is the wound of my lord of aim from which he will never more recover for love has installed himself with him he deserts and goes away from the places he was wont to frequent he cares for no lodging or landlord save this one and he is very wise in leaving a poor lodging place in order to betake himself to him in order to devote himself completely to him he will have no other lodging place though often he is wont to seek out lowly hostelries it is a shame that love should ever so basely conduct himself as to select the meanest lodging place quite as readily as the best but now he has come where he is welcome and where he will be treated honorably and where he will do well to stay this is the way love ought to act being such a noble creature that it is marvellous how he dares shamefully to descend to such low estate he is like him who spreads his balm upon the ashes and dust who mingles sugar with gall and suet with honey however he did not act so this time but rather lodged in a noble place for which no one can reproach him when the dead man had been buried all the people dispersed leaving no clerks or knights or ladies excepting only her who makes no secret of her grief she alone remains behind often clutching at her throat wringing her hands and beating her palms as she reads her psalms in her gilt-lettered psalter all this while my lord yvain is at the window gazing at her and the more he looks at her the more he loves her and is enthralled by her he would have wished that she should cease her weeping and reading and that she should feel inclined to converse with him love who caught him at the window filled him with this desire but he despairs of realizing his wish for he cannot imagine or believe that his desire can be gratified so he says i may consider myself a fool to wish for what i cannot have her lord it was whom i wounded mortally and yet do i think i can be reconciled with her upon my word such thoughts are folly for at present she has good reason to hate me more bitterly than anything i am right in saying at present for a woman has more than one mind that mind in which she is just now i trust she will soon change indeed she will change it certainly and i am mad thus to despair god grant that she change it soon for i am doomed to be her slave since such is the will of love whoever does not welcome love gladly when he comes to him commits treason and a felony i admit and let whosoever will heed what i say that such a one deserves no happiness or joy but if i lose it will not be for such a reason rather will i love my enemy for i ought not to feel any hate for her unless i wish to betray love i must love in accordance with love's desire and ought she to regard me as a friend yes surely since it is she whom i love and i call her my enemy for she hates me though with good reason for i killed the object of her love 
So then, am I her enemy? Surely no, but her true friend, for I never so loved any one before. I grieve for her fair tresses, surpassing gold in their radiance. I feel the pangs of anguish and torment when I see her tear and cut them. Nor can her tears e'er be dried, which I see falling from her eyes. By all these things I am distressed. Although they are full of ceaseless, ever-flowing tears, yet never were there such lovely eyes. The sight of her weeping causes me agony, but nothing pains me so much as the sight of her face, which she lacerates without it having merited such treatment. I never saw such a face so perfectly formed, nor so fresh and delicately colored. And then it has pierced my heart to see her clutch her throat. Surely it is all too true that she is doing the worst she can, and yet no crystal nor any mirror is so bright and smooth. God, why is she thus possessed, and why does she not spare herself? Why does she wring her lovely hands and beat and tear her breast? Would she not be marvellously fair to look upon when in happy mood, seeing that she is so fair in her displeasure? Surely, yes, I can take my oath on that. Never before in a work of beauty was nature thus able to outdo herself, for I am sure she has gone beyond the limits of any previous attempt. How could it ever have happened then? Whence came beauty so marvellous? God must have made her with his naked hand, that nature might rest from further toil. If she should try to make a replica, she might spend her time in vain without succeeding in her task. Even God himself, were he to try, could not succeed, I guess, in ever making such another, whatever effort he might put forth. End of section two.